welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. We continue our three-part series with award-winning author of American Overdose, Chris McGreal. In today's episode, the second in our three-part series, Once again, we'll hear from the former chair of the FDA Advisory Committee, Dr. Nathaniel Katz. We'll also talk with Congressman Hal Rogers from Kentucky and former Congresswoman Mary Bono from California on getting Congress to take action as our nation's worst health crisis was emerging in the early 2000s. As we begin, American overdose author Chris McGreal talks about the pharmaceutical industry's influence over the FDA's drug approval process. I've spoken to um, scientists and uh, doctors who were invited to be part of that process, and they said from the beginning it smacked of the drug companies basically trying to influence that process in a way that they didn't feel was appropriate, and that should have been more open. Uh, These should have been public meetings, uh, and certainly, at the very least, the drug companies should not have been paying money to be there. Um, But you do see that. It was a process that became known as impact, uh, and you you do see that process uh, go on secretly for 10 years. And then it emerges because of a doctor called Andrew Kolodny, who, uh, through a Freedom of Information Act request was able to get hold of the emails of uh, these two uh, academics who had set up this conference, and the discussions between them were very revealing about the motivations and about how pleased the drug companies were that they were able to buy access and sit down with exactly the same officials that were drawing up uh, opioid approval process. And whatever you think about that process, uh, the end result is that, as you say, Aparna went on the market uh, when only a few years earlier it had been rejected. I asked the former chair of the FDA Advisory Committee, Dr. Nathaniel Katz, to share his views on the impact conferences. I think what, what the facts are are that at the beginning, somebody had to fund this and industry has the money. And so and they certainly had a incentive to try to figure out the right way of doing these studies because doing studies the wrong way is very expensive for industry, uh, and it's also expensive for the patients that participate in those trials. I would suggest that it's unethical or at least problematic to enroll a patient into a clinical trial when you really don't know the best way to do that trial, and you're not going to generate useful data. So everybody wins when we know how to do better clinical trials. Industry had the deep pockets. They funded it. I don't think... it certainly did not lead to faster drug approvals. You know, this this drug still have to work in order to get approved, and they have to be safe. And so, um, I don't wouldn't say that it sped up uh, drug approvals as, as far as I can tell, but it improved the scientific rigor with which we tested those uh, drugs, so we could know 
more definitively whether they didn't work, in which case we could stop studying them, or they did work, in which case we could advance them more rapidly to get them into the marketplace to the people that need them. Congressman Hal Rogers was one of the first congressmen to recognize the opioid epidemic as a health threat to our country. He shares his reaction when the close collaboration between the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry was uncovered. They gave huge sums of money to the FDA, uh, who then in turn made rules whether or not their application for a license or what have you would take place. So it was inherently uh, not fair. Yeah. And this, this was a conference which they would put on every year, the IMPACT conference. It was a, it was a continuous embarrassment. Next, Chris McReel remarks on what his research revealed on the IMPACT conferences. I think it's, it's hard to say exactly how much impact uh, impact had in the sense that there's a lot of things at work here and they all kind of reflect each other. You know, the impact is only possible because of the mentality of the FDA and its relationship with the wider industry. Um, I certainly think that the industry's influence in persuading very large numbers of members of Congress that the issue is the patient, not the pills, gave uh, the FDA a free hand uh, to go on doing that. Later, when it becomes much more apparent that there really is an issue, I think that the FDA has become more politically sensitive, although it's gone on approving these drugs. It has also repeatedly promised to take on board the public health. But to some degree, uh, the FDA was insulated by the fact that the uh, the drug companies had bought the compliance for all intents and purposes of most members of Congress. And how do they do that? Well, partly they do it because the public's not paying attention. A member of Congress on a completely different issue once said to me, you know, the, the lobbies that spend all this money can pretty much get what they want as long as the voters don't mind. When the voters start paying attention to an issue and they have an opinion on it, the lobbies are not nearly as effective because ultimate power lies with the voters. Um, and I think that was definitely true in this case, is that so long as the voters weren't focused and weren't, weren't considering this, um, essentially the pharmaceutical industry had co-opted Congress at the very least into buying into its policy, and that continued to give a free hand for the FDA uh, to do what it was doing. When I was researching the book, one of the big questions that leapt out at me was, you know, where were the people ringing the alarm bells? This surely can't have gone unnoticed for so long. Um, partly when I was trying to answer that question about why it went on for 20 years uh, before we really sat down, Americans started talking about it. And what I realized was uh, that actually there were quite a lot of people raising the red flag about this. And Nathaniel Katz was one of them. Uh, there's a doctor called Jane Ballantyne, who was uh, the head of pain management at Harvard University and its associated hospital, Massachusetts General. Um, and they uh, and, and many others saw that what was promised for these drugs wasn't happening. And that was principally that people taking them for long term for chronic pain uh, weren't really getting any better. Uh, they were, Jane Ballantyne's very good on this, that she had she had been prescribing them for a few years and she noticed that her patients actually 
even though she was increasing the dosages as she was told that she could do without increasing the risk of addiction, which was completely wrong, by the way. Um, but she's increasing the dosages, but she noted her patients were still in pain. And on top of that, as the dosages went up, so their quality of life went down and their families would complain that they were listless and that, you know, that, okay, they were, they were still in pain and their quality of life was worse. So how were these drugs helping? Jane Palantine writes, does a study and writes a paper about this in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2003 and said to me that she really thought it would make people sit up and take notice and nothing happens. Similarly, Nathaniel Katz, as you say, he's, he's, uh, he's head of that opioid recommendation committee at the FDA. And he says, listen, we need the studies. There's no evidence. There's never been any evidence that these drugs work. Again, nothing happens. And it's in part because the industry uh, is alarmed. It suddenly realizes that, as Joe Manchin, the senator for West Virginia, which is the worst hit state of all, said to me, somebody was going to take their candy away. And so they decide they need to change the conversation. And they, instead of, uh, uh, what they do is they move the discussion away from the people who are becoming addicted and who are dying uh, to those who they say are the innocent pain patients who mustn't have their pills taken away. And they set up this, this uh, they set them up as opposites. They set them up as the, the uh, people who become addicted are abusing their pills, that they are criminals, uh, that they have only themselves to blame. And it's definitely true that some people who become addicted then go on to buy drugs on the black market and do do criminal things because they've become addicted. But they're often people who were the so-called innocent pain patients uh, to begin with, who got the prescriptions, followed their prescriptions, and then became addicted. And to fight off withdrawal, then start seeking more drugs uh, because it's taken over their lives. And I don't think until you've been addicted to these drugs, you can fully understand what they do to you in your life. And that is how the drug companies changed the conversation. And they were particularly effective in the political sphere. They worked their way through Congress. They got the, they set up these uh, supposedly independent foundations that were well-funded by drug companies. And then they, they also found people who were genuinely uh, felt that the drugs were helping them because they were constantly in pain. But it wasn't at all clear whether actually some of these people were themselves addicted and, and in withdrawal. And they went to Congress and they, they projected this idea, a bit like the tobacco companies, actually, of a balanced approach, which is, of course, we have to be worried about addiction, but we mustn't do anything to take the pills away from those who need them. And really, that is, there was a kind of lost decade when something uh, could have been done that, that there could have uh, uh, the, the, in the early 2000s, when the epidemic could have been either prevented or reined in, but for the next 10 years, that's lost because of the way that the drug companies shifted the conversation. I spoke with former Congresswoman Mary Bono, who shared her frustration working with a Congress in denial of the opioid epidemic in early 2003. In the early days, especially, we ever, we were just met with resistance every step of the way. You know, drug companies, let's go, you know, distributors, pharma, you know, pharmacists, everybody. Nobody wanted to admit they had a role in the problem. 
And nobody, at that point, people weren't even recognizing it as the epidemic that it was, let alone the massive epidemic it was going to become. So um, with Hal, what was very interesting was I had heard about what they called hillbilly heroin, right? Mm -hmm. But I lived in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Hillbilly heroin, that was a world away. It was Appalachos across the country. Um, But suddenly, whoa, here it is in my own community, in my own household, so I sat down next to him on the floor, you know, of the House of Representatives one day, and I sat in the seat next to him. I said, Hal, we got to join forces. This is not hillbilly any longer. And I, I don't mean to use that word disparagingly. It's what it was called. Sure. But this right. is a, a book titled that. Right. Hillbillyology. Mm-hmm. And we are witnessing this. We are two canaries in this coal mine. And um, we got to band together and do something. And I think it was the first time somebody came up to him and said, you're onto something. Let's partner and let's let's do something. So... Um, yeah, I'm really proud of that that relationship, that partnership we built. You know, OxyContin originally was approved for a terminal cancer mm-hmm. and end of life sort of pain, and then the, they, as it's you know everybody knows now, they changed their marketing. They decided to market it to anybody with even moderate pain, and I thought that was unleashing something that was a huge mistake. But so we've it wasn't just Purdue. Purdue with the OxyContin was part of it, but it was all opioids that they needed to be you know, prescribed very carefully for pain. They were over-prescribing. But, oh, yeah, we we were met with resistance. Purdue, out and out, they deny it, but they they threatened me in my office, not with harm or anything like that. They threatened me sort of politically. And uh, Well, you're funding. They, All right. That's right. They were, um, I was married to another member of Congress at the time from Florida, so they thought that, uh, if they pulled their funding for the PDMP, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, in Florida, that that would hurt me. And I actually thought, well, why is Purdue Pharma funding a PDMP in Florida in the first place? Um, but they had threatened me with, to pull the funding. Interesting. Well, you know, it's we've come so far since then. Uh, you know, in the early days, Hal and I, people, I, I, you know, even Congressman G.K. Butterfield, it's just this past year, said um, – that he thought that in our hearings that I was just being, that I was overreacting, and that now he realizes he was wrong. But for a long time, sure, every time we talked about the issues and the problem of overprescribing and seeing these overdose deaths in our our district, you know, somebody would follow us back up and and, uh, fight against us and try to, to not deny that it was happening or act like they weren't a part of the problem. Early on, another vehicle that they used was something created out of thin air, I believe, from David Haddocks. He coined the term pseudo-addiction. So let's talk just a little bit about that term that now seems to be, to me, complete quackery. And let's talk a little bit about how the medical profession could have possibly adopted that. Well, it is complete quackery. Um but it was one. I mean, I think the thing about pseudo-addiction is it didn't stand alone. There had been quite a lot of distorting and overstatement of the science by this group of doctors led by a doctor called Russell Portnoy, um, uh, who were pushing the idea that, that opioids were this magic bullet to deal with chronic pain. And they took studies and claimed on the basis of just a few patients that there was a less than 1% uh, risk of addiction, which proved to be wholly untrue. And they were mirroring the Porter and Jick letter when they did that, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did this, and and Portnoy, to his credit, has since admitted that they were 
the, you know, he was trying to break down what he regarded as an unreasonable stigma against um, against morphine uh, and opioid drugs. Um, and he wanted to break that down, so he was misrepresenting and overstating the science. But David Haddox was one of those, and he comes along with this idea that if you are in pain, you cannot become addicted to the drug. And so that what might look like addiction isn't, is in fact the pain speaking, and the answer to that is to just give more uh, opioids, higher dosage of opioids. In other words, that the, the pain somehow cancels out the risk of addiction, and that you can go on increasing the, um, the dosage as high as you want without risk, provided that the person is in pain, and it's pain you're fighting um, not addiction. Now, there's a point at which it becomes very hard to tell the difference between the pain that was already in the body and the pain of withdrawal. But however you look at that, it's clearly quackery to say that you can just go on increasing the dosages um, uh, and that they will somehow be cancelled out by the pain. And that that has since been discredited. But it, it became, a, uh, became one of the legs of the stool on which the whole idea that uh, that opioids were safe to treat chronic pain was built. His claim is actually a study that's a single cancer patient in hospital. Now, the the the, the several things about that: one, it's a single uh, patient; secondly, it's somebody who has cancer and who was probably dying. But thirdly, it's a hospital setting where you've got very controlled use of the drug. And the dosages weren't just being ratcheted up willy-nilly. Um, so there was really no scientific basis for it. But yes, people took his word for it because he claimed to be preeminent in this area. Um, it's perhaps telling that not long after that, he went off to work for Purdue Pharma. In the final act of American Overdose, you profile West Virginia State Attorney Daryl McGraw who in 2001 was the first state attorney in the country to file a lawsuit against Purdue Pharma. What happened? I mean, Daryl McGraw, uh, he, he's a very interesting figure because he doesn't really see the epidemic until he's having a conversation with a member of the West Virginia State Legislature. And she says to him that they can't find enough prison guards because there's quite a lot of federal prisons in West Virginia um, because they can't, uh, applicants can't pass the drug test. And he said, he was wondering what on earth that could possibly be about. And that's when he first began to understand what was happening in parts of rural West Virginia. And as he understood it, he began to, uh, <laughs> he he decided that he should go after the the company that was most responsible in his eyes, and that was Purdue Pharma. So he starts uh, subpoenaing all kinds of documents and emails, and he puts together this, this very comprehensive picture of the actions of Purdue Pharma. And it's really the first uh, legal case that makes it to court. Uh, other um, attorney generals have looked at it down in Florida and elsewhere, but... Um, this is the first uh, court case, but he did secure at the last minute an agreement, uh, quite um, quite a, a limited admission of responsibility for all intents and purposes and sealed. So we never really knew the details, but it was the first time that Purdue uh, 
was forced in court to come up with that kind of agreement, that kind of admission. And it was actually, the, it was put together at the last minute. Um, the final deal was sealed by Eric Holder, who would go on to become uh, Barack Obama's attorney general. Uh, but uh, Durham McGraw is very interesting on on the whole attitude of Purdue Pharma and how they um, approached it, which was, as I was saying earlier, to blame the victims, to say this is nothing to do with the pills. Let us show you the problem of chronic pain. He said how these um, these uh, officials came down, including David Haddocks, who was from West Virginia uh, originally, and how they came down and they did a PowerPoint presentation, which is exactly what they've been doing to Congress, which was to say there's an epidemic of untreated pain. Our drugs are helping everybody. These people that are dying, it's their own fault. And McGraw said he listened to them and he booted them out the door. And then he was as determined as ever to pursue Purdue Pharma. I talked with Judge Daryl McGraw, who is the former AG of West Virginia. Purdue Pharma, it was in this case, resisted that uh, suit. And uh, so it was an all-out fight. Again, the basic notion being that uh, we didn't have uh, the authority or standing to bring the case. So you had experience through your uh, big tobacco work, um, and you, you kind of used that as your roadmap when it came time to bring this lawsuit against Purdue Pharma, right? That was part of it, yes. Yeah. And and so just before you filed, though, I understand Purdue Pharma paid a visit to you with a PowerPoint presentation in hand. Yes. Yes, they came. and We accommodated them. Uh, and we were actually cordial uh, to them. We, we weren't hostile to uh, their representation. You had somebody from your uh, state who was part of the group. Uh, Actually, there was a doctor uh, with the group who was uh, what I shall call a a local boy from the coal fields, if that makes sense. Sure. And uh, and any in any case, these uh, folks that were responsible for the management and control of Purdue Pharma came and made their presentation and. Uh, uh, to the Attorney General and to uh, several members of the Attorney General's staff. Uh, the staff uh, was not uh, impressed. The state of West Virginia brought the lawsuit against Purdue Pharma, who ultimately settled the case by paying a fine of $10 million. Judge McGraw shares his perspective on that settlement. That was the settlement that we uh, uh, were offered, and that's the settlement that the uh, judge was inclined to accept. And I don't fault the judge for it, uh, because uh, remember that this was the first case, in this jurisdiction anyway, that this was the first case where you had this issue. And, uh, of course, you know, he'd be on uh, pioneering ground and was on pioneering ground. But when the settlement offer occurred, 
then that relieved him of having to make a decision on standing. They were accepting standing. And in the end, Purdue Pharma wanted to seek revenge, and they got it. Well, they did. Well, he, he, his view is that what happened was that they looked around and decided that McGraw was opening the door to lawsuits of that kind across the country, and they needed to shut it down. So they essentially ends up, end up uh, funding his political opponents, and eventually he loses an election. And he, he says, you know, he, he admits he made plenty of enemies along the way, but he thinks that uh, it's pretty telling that his opponent who beat him, a Republican, uh, had been himself heavily involved with the pharmaceutical industry and that uh, his opponent's wife was actually contracted to a, a big drug company. Uh, so he thinks it was the pharmaceutical industry taking its revenge. And he may not be wrong to the extent that it was true that uh, other states were very hesitant after that to go after Purdue Pharma um, and the drug industry as a whole over this epidemic until we now see this this wave of lawsuits. But that's 10 years later. I mean, McGraw uh, got his uh, his uh, his settlement with Purdue Pharma in 2005. It took another 10 years, really, for the rest of the country to follow up on that. You know, it seems as though our congressmen at the time, certainly early on, were either asleep at the switch or complicit in, in this whole epidemic as it evolved. But Congressman Hal Rogers from Kentucky and Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia appeared to be kind of the exception. I think that Hal Rogers is really one of the more heroic figures in Congress on this, in that he, very early on, uh, he, because his own district in eastern Kentucky was so devastated, uh, he came at this and, and made a lot of noise very early on with a couple of other members of Congress, and they were brushed aside, and he, he was quite angry at the way the FDA even though he's a legislature, legislator, they uh, treated him, uh, as he um, regards it, with disdain, brushed aside his concerns. And he had a sense that even though they're a public body, they didn't feel accountable at all to Congress on this. Uh, Joe Manchin comes to this somewhat later in the story. Um, and I, I think that if you listen to Daryl McGraw, Darren McGraw says that Manchin actually was one of those people putting pressure on him in West Virginia not to go after a criminal prosecution of Purdue because it would make West Virginia look bad with big companies and they might not invest there. Mm. Certainly by the time that Manchin is in uh, the Senate, the U.S. Senate, uh, he's more aware of what's happening in his state and he does indeed become much more vocal on this. And they both point their finger at impact in the FDA. This concludes the second episode in our series on American Overdose with author Chris McGreal. So what have we learned? We learned Endo, one of the Impact Conference sponsors, sought FDA approval for Opana, a high-strength drug that was withdrawn from the market two decades earlier because it was so frequently misused. Well, the FDA rejected the application after several patients in the clinical trial overdosed. Just three years later, Endo presented new clinical trial data to the FDA, and this time, Opana was approved for sale without any changes to the formula. The drug maker voluntarily took it off the market in 2017. 
but not before thousands lost their lives by overdosing on Opana. My name is Greg McNeil. Tune in next time for part three in our three-part series on American Overdose, where you'll hear a founding member of the Impact Conferences comment on the FDA's satisfaction with the approval process for Opana. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.